Live from New York City, it's the Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nolan. I'd like to welcome you to this program. Broadcasting live from our studios in New York City and video streaming live from that same studio, you can watch by going to ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com or GaryNoll.com. Today, the latest on health and healing. Also, why do clinical trials exclude depressed people? Well, I'll get into that. What happens when you're unemployed concerning your health? Latest on that as well. And a vegetarian diet is linked to a lower risk of which disease? Coming up in a moment. Also, we're continuing with our Conversations with Remarkable Mind series. This is one of the most popular series we've ever done. And today we have professors Joel Primack and Professor Nancy Abram. Professor Joel Primack is a distinguished professor of physics and astronomy at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And Professor Nancy Abram is a scholar in the history of science and technology. What is the theme? The urgent need for a new mythology of humanity's origins and place in the universe for uniting and addressing the global challenges ahead. It will be a real thinking person's discussion. Again, conversations with Remarkable Mind in the second half of our program. I will be doing an issue of the day. The issue today is why the United States is destroying its educational system by Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning author, as published on truthdig.com. I will be asking for your input following that. Here we go. Now, every time you see one of those ads on television and they're telling you to take a particular drug, even if the side effects for the drug might be death, We assume that that drug has been tested properly on the very people that would be most likely to need it. For example, if you have a drug that you're testing for antidepressed or for depressed people, why would you exclude those people? Well, here's the latest, and this is probably something you haven't heard. This is from Erica Wesley from Reuters. Quote, when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced that Pfizer's smoking cessation drug uh, Shantix would need to carry a restricted black box warning label. The move didn't really surprise the market. The drug sales had already been declining. Uh, by the end of 2009, they had dropped to $700 million, down from $846 million the previous year. When the drug is launched, a lot of people expected a blockbuster drug with over a billion in sales, but then the reports of the side effects started coming in. The FDA's response came after hundreds of reports of erratic behavior and several suicides. Now Pfizer faces a civil lawsuit involving 1,200 patient complaints. In retrospect, however, the experts said that uh, this could all have been avoided. And here's the deal. And here's what we don't pay attention to. But I brought this up in previous programs. When you see how manipulated these studies are, you would be appalled. For example, I'll just give you one example. Let's say that you're testing a flu vaccine for pregnant women. 
Now, one of the most common side effects is that you have a spike in your body temperature. After all, you're putting live or dead viruses and bacteria, chemicals, including thimerosal, mercury, aluminum, formaldehyde into a person's body. And you're bypassing all the safety barriers, the stomach, hydrochloric acid, the things that can help neutralize or dilute a toxin before it gets into the bloodstream. You're sticking with that vaccine right into the bloodstream. So it's normal for a person to have an adverse reaction, including a spiking in temperature, going up to 101, 102. So what do they do? Any woman in this study that had a spike in temperature within 72 hours, they excluded her from the study. Well, hold on. That completely destroys the credibility of the study. Ah, but who looks at the study? Almost nobody. <clears throat> then, if you, if you had been on heart medications or cancer medications or mental health medications, if you've been on any tranquilizers, you were excluded. If you had been using alcohol, excluded. So by the time you realize how many women they excluded, that's half of all women in the United States. And here's the bad part of this. Then who are you going to give this vaccine to? Are you going to give it to the women that you excluded? Well, then that's hypocritical. How can you say, we excluded you because you're on heart medication from being in the test to see if it's safe or effective, but now that we've got it passed, we're going to give it to you. We're going to sell it to you. That's how absolutely bad science is in the United States today. That's how bad these studies are. We're reviewing all clinical studies to show which ones are authentic and legitimate and which are not. So as any question comes up about whether you should take a drug and what studies have been done to prove that they're safe or effective, let me know. And we'll show you whether or not they excluded people who actually should be um, the ones taking it. Unemployment. It's worse than what we thought for a lot of people. It can be deadly especially for men. In a new study, they analyzed 40 years of data on 20 million people in 15 countries, and they found that being unemployed increases your risk of premature death by 63%. The quality of the nation's health care system did not affect that level of risk. They also found that unemployment boosts men's risk of premature death much more than it does women's risk, 78%, and that the risk of death is particularly high among people younger than 50. Quote, we suspect that even today not having a job is more stressful for men than women. This is a professor from McGill University on this. When a man loses his job, quote, it is still um, often a means that the family will become poor and suffer in various ways, which in turn can have a huge impact on a man's health by leading to both increased smoking, drinking, or eating, and by reducing the availability of health, healthy, nutritious, and health care services. Well, I believe that women and men both suffer equally. I don't believe one is going to have a worse situation than the other, though I do believe that many men, based upon their conditioning, will believe that if they're unemployed that they have failed the family especially those adaptive supportives who believe that the entire economic responsibility of a family rests upon them until such time that the, the women in the family go into the workplace if they historically have not. 
And that depends upon a person's culture. Certain cultures, women are not expected to work in the um, as men are. In others, they are. So you have to take all that into consideration. And then ask yourself, how do you feel when you're unemployed and you can't find work? How do you feel if you've gone to college, you have an education, but you can't apply it? And if you do come out and you get a job that's flipping hamburgers or working, you know, stocking merchandise in a Walmart instead of what you spent tens of thousands of dollars uh, studying, and now you don't have that job. All that weighs upon a person's self-esteem, and they look at their future and say, how in the world am I going to have a future if I don't even have enough money to do anything more than pay my parents' rent and stay at home? They're not looking at the most important factor here. It's not the poor diet. It's stress. Let's go back in time to the man who did more to teach us about the harmful effects of stress than any other scientist up to that point, Hans Selye. I have been interviewed him many times, and it was Professor Hans Selye who said, there's two types of stress. Distress, which comes from what we cannot control, and normal stress, they can actually be healthy, things that give us joy and excitement and passion and pleasure. If you have distress, it produces cortisol, epinephrine, adrenaline, increases in blood sugar, heart palpitations, and high blood pressure. It creates pro-inflammatory chemicals that go to the brain and the heart. It literally can kill you. And then we have normal stress, the excitement of going to a concert or a lecture, or a play, or the excitement of getting a gift, or the excitement of what you're going to do on your vacation, or the excitement of seeing someone that you enjoy seeing and being with, the excitement of bringing a new puppy or kitten home, and how everybody is, is just filled with excitement about it. These are healthy stresses. When you're unemployed, or not gainfully employed, when you're struggling, then you're under distress. That changes your body's biochemistry 24-7. That is what causes the death. So where they studied for um, 40 years, 20 million people, they left out completely stress and distress. So appreciate this study. It was published in Social Science and Medicine, but I believe that they were very limited and how they analyze this. Now, good news for vegetarians and specifically those who are healthy vegetarians because a lot of people are unhealthy vegans and unhealthy vegetarians. Here is the latest on being a vegetarian in a good way. Quote, Reuters, Eating less meat and more vegetables is tied to a lower risk of cataracts. This is according to a major study. Fifteen years, they followed a group of individuals and they followed meat eaters, and they followed vegetarians and vegans. And they found that there was a 40% lower risk of cataract among vegetarians and vegans compared with the meat eaters. And it says, quote, people who don't eat meat have a significant lower risk of developing cataracts. Unquote, Dr. Naomi Allen at the University of Oxford. So... Good news for vegans and vegetarians, and that was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And finally, vitamin D can help prevent osteoporosis or bone loss. And the trouble with bone loss is not painful. There's really no symptoms until one day, boom, you end up with a fracture. 
So they did a study, and they found out that the more vitamin D you have up to your body's requirements, uh, the less osteoporosis you have. Now, if you add in vitamin uh, calcium with vitamin D, and I would suggest boron, 5 milligrams of boron, 800 to 1,000 milligrams of calcium from citrate, 800 to 1,000 milligrams of magnesium from citrate, C-I-T-R-A-T-E, 20 milligrams, 10 to 20 milligrams of manganese, 10 milligrams of silica, that you're going to have really strong bones. And this was a study of 100,000 middle-aged participants and published in a mainstream medical journal and done at the uh, Biometrics, uh, Biomechanics and Skeletal Biology, Hamburg, Eppendorf University Hospital. One last thing, eating strawberries is going to protect your esophagus. That's according to the American Association for Cancer Research. And they studied 16,000 individuals in the United States and found out that those that had the highest intake of strawberries had the lowest esophageal problems. And that's because when you have coffee, soft drinks, hot coffee, alcohol, you are burning the very sensitive mucous membranes in the esophagus. Like a pizza, where you burn the roof of your mouth. Every time you have coffee, every time you have a hot beverage, you're actually burning. That's why I only drink beverages, including tea, warm, never hot. Well, the body tries to repair that, but then you end up doing it every day or several times a day, and then you end up with esophageal cancer. Fastest cancer uh, increase of all cancers is esophageal cancer, and coffee is the major culprit. I'll be doing a program next week on coffee, showing you the latest science, showing you how bad it really is. I'm Gary Nall. This is where we give you the science behind health from the original data, not reported in the mainstream media. Back in a moment. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. The hip ray and ballet the lullaby of Broadway. The rumble of the subway trains, the rattle of the taxi, the daffodils who entertain at Angelo's and Maxine's when the Broadway baby says goodnight. It's early in the morning. Manhattan babies don't sleep tight until the dawn. Good night, baby. I'd like to welcome you all from all over the world. In about uh, 22 minutes from now, we'll be talking with our Conversations with Remarkable Minds series with Professors Joel Primack and Professor Nancy Abrams on the need for a new mythology for humanity's origins, since the one we have just doesn't work anymore. And you'll find that an interesting conversation. Just a few little quick notes. Radiation detected in drinking water in 13 more U.S. cities, including the very deadly cesium-137 in Vermont milk. And this is from uh, Jeff McMoan and uh, from Common Dreams. Quote, radiation from Japan has been detected in drinking water in 13 more U.S. cities, and cesium-137 has been found in 
Montpellier, Vermont, for the first time since Jap- the Japan nuclear disaster began. And this is the Environmental Protection Agency's own uh, samples. By the way, samples of milk in Phoenix, Los Angeles. And I have here, I went online and I found uh, Helena, Montana, Columbia, Pennsylvania, Cincinnati, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, Denver, Colorado, Detroit, Michigan, Trenton, New Jersey, Watertown, New Jersey, all over the place when they're actually testing the drinking water. You guessed it, they're finding radiation. So remember what I said that when the people in the White House told you not to have any problems, when people on Fox News said no problem, misinformation abounded. So much so that this week, if I'm able to finish it, I will give you the latest continuing in our ongoing, in-depth, original investigative reporting series on our deadly nuclear legacy. And I will show you all the products they're not talking about. They're talking about iodine. Fine, that goes away in 16 days. But these other products will stay for dozens of years, hundreds of years, or thousands of years in the soil, in the water, in the air, in the food. Now, for a commentary and your responses to this commentary. As you know, if you've listened to this program, I'm very concerned about educational system. I believe that No Child Left Behind was a complete and total fraud as an educational means of getting children to be educated about issues. I also am opposed to how curriculums are taught. I'm not opposed to teachers at all. I believe the teachers have been victimized. I do believe that the problem at its core is the wrong curriculums are being taught, and hence There's enormous pressure to privatize schools, to profit from it, and whether it's the Gates Foundation, Bill Gates, or the hedge funds getting involved in education, it is not my belief that they're in that in order to really educate our children, but rather to exploit a revenue stream. And a nation that destroys its systems of education and degrades its public information and guts its public libraries and turns its airwaves into vehicles for cheap, mindless amusement becomes deaf, dumb, and blind. It prizes test scores, which I abhor, above critical thinking and literacy, which I support. It celebrates rote vocational training and the singular amoral skill of making money. It churns out stunted human products lacking the capacity and vocabulary to challenge the assumptions and structures of the corporate state. It funnels them into a caste system of drones and systems managers. It transforms a democratic state into a feudal system of corporate masters and serfs. Teachers, their unions under attack, are becoming as replaceable as minimum wage employees at Burger King. We spurn real teachers, those with the capacity to inspire children to think, those who help the young discover their gifts and potential, and replace them with instructors who teach too narrow, standardized tests. These instructors obey. They teach children to obey. And that is the point. The No Child Left Behind program model on the Texas miracle is a complete and total unmitigated fraud. And I will debate any teacher, any principal in the United States at any time, and you have to show me, because I cannot find it, this was anything other than a massive fraud. I am absolutely 100% against No Child Left Behind. It worked no better than our deregulated financial system. But when you shut out debate, these dead issues are self-perpetuating. 
passing bubble test celebrates and rewards a peculiar form of analytical intelligence. This kind of intelligence is prized by money managers and corporations. They don't want employees to ask uncomfortable questions or examine existing structures and assumptions. They want them to serve the system. These tests produce men and women who are just literate and numerate enough to perform basic functions and service jobs. The tests evaluate those with the financial means to prepare for them. They reward those who obey the rules, memorize the formulas, and pay deference to authority. What about those of us, myself included, who are rebels, artists, independent thinkers, critical thinkers, eccentrics, and iconoclasts, those who march to their own beat? We are all weeded out. How many times have you heard me say, I can find no place I belong? Because for me to truly feel comfortable in belonging in any of these institutions, forms, guilds, I would have compromised my basic integrity. Imagine, said a school teacher in New York City, who asked not to use his name, going to work each day knowing a great deal of what you are doing is fraudulent, knowing in no way are we preparing our students for life in an ever more brutal world, knowing that if you don't continue along your scripted test prep course and indeed get better at it, you will be put out of a job. Up until very recently, the principal of a school was something like a conductor of an orchestra, a person who had deep experience and knowledge of the part and place of every member and every instrument. In the past ten years, we've had the emergence of both Mayor Mike Bloomberg's Leadership Academy and L.A. Broad's Superintendent's Academy, both created exclusively to produce instant principals and superintendents who model themselves after CEOs. How is this kind of thing even legal? How are such academies accredited? What quality of leader needs a leadership academy? What kind of society would allow such people to run their schools in the first place? The high-stakes test may be worthless as positioning, but they are a brilliant mechanism for undermining the school systems, instilling fear and creating a rationale for corporate takeover. There is something grotesque about the fact that education reform is being led not by educators, but by financiers and speculators and billionaires. Teachers under assault from every direction are fleeing the profession. Even before the reform blitzkrieg, teachers were losing half of all teachers within five years after they started work, and these were people who spent years in school and many thousands of dollars to become teachers. How does the country expect to retain dignified, trained professionals under the hostility of current conditions? I suspect that the hedge fund managers behind our school systems, especially privatized school systems, whose primary concern is certainly not with education, are delighted to replace real teachers with non-unionized, poorly trained instructors. To truly teach is to instill the values and knowledge which promote the common good and protect that society from the folly of historical amnesia. The utilitarian corporate ideology embraced by the system of standardized tests and leadership academies has no time for the nuances and moral ambiguities inherent in a liberal edu- arts education. Corporatism is about the cult of self. It is about a personal enrichment and profit as the sole aim of human existence, and those who do not conform are pushed out. In conclusion, the demonizing of teachers is another public relations ploy 
a way for corporations to deflect attention from the theft of some $17 billion in wages and savings and earnings among American workers in a landscape where one in six workers is without employment. The speculators on Wall Street looted the U.S. Treasury. They stymied any kind of regulation. They have avoided criminal charges. They are stripping basic social services, and now they're demanding to run our schools and universities. Should we let them? No. The truly educated become conscious. They become self-aware. They do not lie to themselves. They do not pretend that fraud is moral or that corporate greed is good. They do not claim that the demands of the marketplace can morally justify the hunger of children or denial of medical care to the sick. They do not throw six million families from their homes as the cost of doing business. No. They do not do this. There is only one inner dialogue. That is truth. Those who think, ask questions. Questions those in authority do not want asked and will not answer. They remember who we are, where we come from, and where we should go. They remain eternally skeptical and distrustful of power. And they know that this moral independence is the only protection from the radical evil that results from collective unconsciousness. The capacity to think is the only bulwark against any centralized authority that seeks to impose mindless obedience. There's a huge difference, as Socrates understood, between teaching people what to think and teaching them how to think. Those who are endowed with a moral conscience refuse to commit crimes, even those sanctioned by the corporate state, because they do not, in the end, want to live with criminals themselves. Back in a moment, I'm Gary Knoll, Chris Hedges. Say hello to Alfonso from New York City. Hi, Alfonso. Hi, Mr. Noll. Um, currently, I'm a student at uh, NYIT, the Old, West, Old Westbury campus, and um, you said before that you believe teachers are being victimized. Um, that may be true, but I also believe um, teachers are allowing themselves to be victimized. Personally, right now, I'm taking a pre-calculus course at the campus, and the teacher herself yesterday said, um, this is getting too boring for me. It's getting too lazy. I'm going to give. She actually said, "I'm going to give you guys the easiest test of the semester coming up, and we're coming up on finals." And it just makes me think that once teachers reach tenure, they no longer are. They no longer filled with passion in order to drive the students. Okay, let's focus on that for just a second here. You've actually raised two questions within one. One is that. Can we have within a failing system those individuals who actually enable it or contribute to it, such as lazy teachers, unqualified teachers, illiterate teachers, selfish teachers, and cowardly teachers? The answer is 
Absolutely. Do they represent, however, the majority? Absolutely not. So it means, do we have the capacity through the teachers or their unions or the school system to actually get the schools and the teachers up to strength and reform the system? Yes, we can. Do we have the political will? That remains to be seen. Now compare that to wanting to blame everything upon the teachers or their unions and disempower both to replace the historical teaching model with one that is based solely upon getting students to pass tests and then pass them up the system to get them out of the system because it's profitable, because you're making a profit off every child or every textbook sold, and therefore you can control the curriculum by controlling the textbooks and what is taught, and then you can control the profitability of a child. That is a pernicious system, in which case that should be challenged, and that is the worst of all. We all realize that we have all had teachers that we respect and those that we did not. You do not, however, challenge those you do respect who are doing a good job against those that are not. That is for us to focus our energy on, and we should have a mechanism and vehicle for doing that. And right right now we do not have a good mechanism or vehicle because more often than not, if you do bring a challenge against teacher, that that teacher can stay for a long time who is unqualified or not serving the interests of her students and protected. We must have a way where we have a capacity for authentic reform without, without blaming the teachers or destroying the teachers who are doing a good job and those teachers who do speak out against the bad teaching standards or the curriculum or the power structure that now exists. Okay, so we have to separate out your issue so that we look at it as two separate issues, both, okay. deserve, both deserving attention. I also have a theory that the reason why the school system is failing is a plan by the United States government of intentionally dumbing down the population in order for them to easily manipulate them. Okay, I have not seen any evidence of an intentional dumbing down. I have seen a lot of evidence of the unintended consequences. It's no different than intending to set a bad, sell a bad food to an individual in order to make them obese and then exploit them for profit by selling them an anti-obesity drug. I see no proof of that. What I do see, however, is that when the majority of the foods that are advertised on television are unhealthy, and then a person trusting what they're seeing on television eats those foods, become sick with diabetes or obesity or heart disease, and then has to rely upon a medical system for that care, that is the unintended consequences. And we must separate out the difference in critical judgment by not blaming everything that there's a conspiracy to take over people or to take over their consciousness, but rather to manipulate them for profit on a specific issue. Okay, thank you very much, Alfonso. appreciate your call. Uh, I see my guests are up. Um, what we're going to do, Elizabeth, we're going to hold your question until tomorrow. Okay? So, Elizabeth will be back with your questions tomorrow. But we want to go now to our guests who are standing by, and I want to give them ample opportunity and time. This is a Conversations with Remarkable Minds. I gave you a background on our guests. I'll do it quickly again. Professor Joel Primack, a distinguished professor of physics and astronomy at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and his wife, Professor Nancy Abrams, a scholar in the history of science and technology. And Professor Primack has been a researcher in cosmology since the 1970s. 
His work led to the important discovery of the existence of cold, dark matter, which makes up about 25% of all matter in the universe, and has become a basic principle in astronomy. His work also has included computer simulations of cosmic evolution and was one of the founders of the Union for Concern of Concerned Scientists. He has been a board member of the Federation of American Scientists and initiated the Congressional Section for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And Nancy Abrams specializes in the history of philosophy of science and a law degree from the University of Michigan and uh, has worked in this field substantially. Now, both of them have been at the forefront of developing a new metaphysics, a new origin story based upon the current knowledge and science we have about the universe and the evolution of human beings. They are authors of two invaluable and acclaimed books, The View from the Center of the Universe, and the now just released The New Universe and Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. Nice to have you both with us today. Nice to be here. Thank you. I would like to begin uh, a little backwards um, with a quote from someone that I interviewed many years ago, Joseph Campbell, who I know you know and knew. And he said, the old gods are dead or dying, and the people everywhere are searching, asking, what is the new mythology to be, the mythology of this unified earth as one harmonious being? That's also, you used that in your book. Well, today, old myths with little scientific credibility dominate so much of the popular religious consciousness. The Creation Museum in Louisville, Kentucky is a perfect example of Religious fantasy is a guide of, for behavior and action. And on the flip side, the secularism and strict uh, scientism provides no meaningful purpose to human existence for many people. And together, these two views have kept humanity fragmented, divided, and we see this repeatedly in the rhetoric of a clash of civilizations, a war between religions, exploitation of the Earth's resources, a, a doctrine of survival of fittest between nations that is solely based upon competition rather than common cause or shared origins. So first, I would like you please to hear your assessment of where humanity is today with respect to a shared meaningful purpose in life, and second, what have been the major events and philosophies or ideologies that have brought us to this impasse where there is little concern for the survival of our children's children's children about how we treat the earth and each other? Instead, we only consider the short-term benefits that feed our single life on the planet and no further. And finally, why is the creation of a new cosmology, a new metaphysics of humanity's purpose and being, not only on earth, but in the universe, so important now? The form is yours. Well, let me start with the, the first question. Where are we with respect to um, a meaningful, purposeful uh, picture of reality? Um, right now, we are in a very odd situation. We're at a turning point. We have reached a point where the old mythologies don't work anymore. Our science has shot far ahead of our mythologies, so that we're living in a world where we're exploiting technologies like well, that are based on general relativity. For example, GPS systems are all based on general relativity and um, genetic engineering and quantum mechanics, the whole computer revolution and so forth. But these, science, these sciences are very inconsistent with the picture of the universe that people still have in their minds, which is basically the picture of the universe uh, that began at the Copernican Revolution. That is, the picture that most people imagine is that the universe is just a big, endless, empty space, uh, 
scattered with celestial objects. Some people know that those celestial objects include galaxies. Other people think of them just as stars. But the point is that they think of that. They think of a huge empty space um, scattered with stuff. But that is not at all the modern picture. And the modern picture is much more interesting. Joel will explain it because he's actually um, one of the people who um, developed the theory that explains it all. But when we bring our picture of the universe up to date and we realize where we as human beings actually stand, how we fit in as intelligent beings to this amazing evolving being of a universe, it completely changes our sense of identity. And with this brand new identity, we can also, we can see much further into the future because we can see much further into the past. This is going to be, I think, the basis of the first unifying picture of reality that the Earth has ever had or could ever have had. Because the scientific picture is the first one that's actually created by people from all different countries different religions, different nationalities, it doesn't matter. They all follow, all sciences follow the same standards. So this creation picture, this new creation picture, is the only one that really could be shared by the world if people actually catch on to what it is. And what Joel and I are trying to do is to present it in the way that all creation pictures have been presented, that is with mythic language and mythic imagery, because that is absolutely appropriate. Joel, do you want to say something on this question? Well... Uh, I think the thing I'd like to emphasize about the new picture is how different it is from the biblical picture, which I think is actually what a lot of people have in mind, not even the uh, Enlightenment picture. Uh, something like half of the American population consistently answers the Gallup poll uh, on this, saying that they think that the universe is less than 10,000 years old. Uh, their picture is that, uh, in fact, Humans have been around since the sixth day. Uh, you know, according to the first story at the beginning of Genesis, uh, humans are created on the sixth day and then God rests on the seventh. And they also think, uh, at least many of them do, that the world is going to come to an end sometime soon, which of course means that we don't have to worry too much about the future. In any case, it's all in God's hands, they think. Well, uh, that's not at all the modern scientific picture. We know for sure that the universe is about 13.7 billion years old. We know that the Earth is a little over 4.5 billion years old. We know that humans have just recently come on the scene. Uh, our type is perhaps 100,000 years old. Uh, Homo sapiens, we call ourselves. Uh, we also know that the universe is going to continue far into the future. Uh, far longer than it's existed so far. The Earth will continue far into the future. The condition of the Earth, however, uh, especially uh, for the next many thousands of years, is going to be very dependent on what we humans do. We've now taken control of the Earth, uh, not necessarily with a lot of forethought, and what we do is having enormous impact on the Earth in many different ways, not just carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, although that's certainly an important way. So we have to think about the Earth and our role in it in a way that's very different from the biblical picture. Uh, it's really going to be up to us, humans, across the world to uh, try to come to some kind of long-term relationship with our gorgeous planet. Another thing that we've discovered is that the Earth is truly extraordinary. Our solar system is extraordinary. 
we found a great many other planetary systems. Uh, there's something like a thousand that we now know something about, and about 500 where we have a, a fair amount of information. There isn't any that looks like ours. So we are learning that Earth is really special and that uh, its future is very much dependent on what we do in the next few decades. And so we'd better learn how to take care of Earth in a way that will be good for our children, our children's children, and so forth. Uh, and we can do this. It's not too late, although it's getting very late. And I think our biggest problem is that we don't have, we humans across the world, a shared picture of reality. It's high time that the general population catches up to what we scientists have been discovering for the last century or so. We scientists now have a pretty general consensus about how the world works, not just on the scale of the Earth, but the whole cosmos. We have a pretty good picture of the history, both of Earth and the cosmos, and we can project the future pretty well. Uh, so that's the basis for a shared, coherent picture that all humans across the planet could share if they would just be willing to accept what the consensus of science is telling us well let me just let me just intersect for a moment please you're also at the same time then asking um, a an existential issue be addressed how can a person accept the true word of their religion as being the ultimate belief in their beginning and where they're at in that belief system and that runs exactly opposite of the scientific reality that we've created and wasn't it Carl Sagan who said that we are only stardust? And and isn't it the Buddhists who are fond to say that human life or a human incarnation is very rare and precious, so don't waste it? And in terms of universal space and time, the various graduations, humans hold a singularly rare and extraordinary rare uh, position. It's both myster mysterious and mystical in the scheme of things. So, so basically we sit at a very midpoint of the time frame that we rarely want to look at. If we did, then it would it would challenge us, okay, then you better recalibrate your beliefs. And I don't know that we're willing at this point to recalibrate our beliefs if in the process of recalibration we have to, in effect, say no to a lot of those strong religious principles that we were told, where did we come from, when did it begin, and you're running up against that. Your thoughts, please. Well, uh, I think... Religion has to make a clear distinction between uh, the core principles of a religion, which usually don't have to do with the creation story, and the, uh, the moral truths uh, and, and precepts of a religion, uh, on the one hand, and the scientific or pseudo-scientific claims of a religion. Uh, way back in the 4th century, St. Augustine uh, warned Christians not to make fools of themselves by arguing about whether the earth is flat or spherical. Uh, the, the biblical stories, uh, certainly the Genesis stories, are based on the picture of a flat earth, which was the shared picture a uh, 1,000 B.C. or so when those stories probably came into being. Uh, and uh, St. Augustine was fully aware of the Greek thought uh, that showed that the earth is spherical. And 
he didn't think that it was wise for Christians to make fools of themselves about that. And uh, in general, the Catholic Church has been, except for some uh, episodes connected with Galileo, uh, smarter than to get into those sorts of foolish arguments. Uh, I think that, on the whole, the scientific truths are now so well established, uh, the age of the universe, the age of the earth, uh, the way uh, chemistry and biology and physics work, uh, that it's foolish for religious people to imagine that their religions would be undermined if they accepted those scientific truths. Most of the uh, mainstream religions have not had a problem with the basic uh, scientific truths, even about evolution. Uh, so I, I don't really think that this is a challenge to people's deepest held beliefs the problem is that uh, in the United States especially, a movement called the Fundamentals in the uh, 1910s, 1920s period, uh, somehow connected the idea that uh, reading the Bible literally, and in particular these Genesis stories, uh, is really essential for uh, at least some conservative Christian uh, religions. That was a horrible mistake. And uh, it was compounded by uh, this claim of scientific accuracy of these uh, biblical stories uh, that uh, was spread in the 50s and 60s and was picked up especially by some of the uh, uh, conservative Christian sects. Uh, that, I think, is a horrible mistake. And the fact that such a large fraction of people in the United States, the most powerful country in the world, subscribe to these silly ideas is uh, one of the things that I think is a really serious problem not only for the United States but for the world. Okay, let, let me... Well, wait, let me... I, could I say something on this? Sure. Uh, um, Joel mentioned that we need a shared picture of reality, but we need something much more than that because a picture of reality or any knowledge at all is not really enough to change people's behavior. Um, if you really want to change people's behavior, you have to help them find a larger identity that they like, that they really want to be part of, that it's exciting and spiritually fulfilling to be part of, and that changes their behavior. Certainly, um, AA and all those um, anonymous organizations have discovered this. And the key to changing the behavior at a fundamental level is finding a new identity. Now, this new picture of the universe that we're describing in our book and that Joel has actually been creating is not just, well, from the point of view of science, it is just about the universe out there. But what we're doing in our book is we're interpreting it. We're saying, what does this mean for us? And for us, what it means is that we actually do have a huge identity which we can claim if we understand it, we have levels of identity. For example, each of us has a self-consciousness. That's myself as an individual. I'm also part of a family. I identify with my family. Then on a larger scale, I identify with my tribe or my community. And then on a much larger scale, I identify with my religion worldwide or with my nation. Now, what we need to do is expand our identity quite a bit further. The next step up is to identify with the human species. We are indeed, we're all humans, but we don't understand yet that a threat to humanity is a threat to me. 
So we need to make that big jump. Once we make that jump, then we can uh, really claim our much larger identities as life and part of the earth and really even the self-consciousness of the cosmos because we don't know of any other way that the cosmos can understand itself except through us. And by us, I don't mean just humans. I mean all intelligent beings anywhere that, you know, that they may exist, but they're very rare. I would agree, I would agree yeah. with what you're saying. In fact, I would agree with what both of you are saying. I'm merely suggesting this. At a time when we in the field who are progressive thinkers, who come from a science background, but also come from a spiritual background, are trying to ask people, do you care about the planet you live on? Do you care about the food you eat? Do you care about your body politic? Do you care about the wellness of one? If you start off with a community that's well, a, a group that's well, a, a pasture, a stream, a river that's well, that we can all enjoy, then we're living in some sense of harmony. Right now, we can't even agree in our society, nor do we have the political will to acknowledge global warming or any of the 12 tipping points, or that what we're doing commercially to enhance our standard of living is destroying our future, the standard of living for those in the future, quality of life in the future. And a lot of these people wrap themselves in the certainty that science will find the answer if, uh, on their quality of life, but their religion or beliefs will give them the answer on taking no responsibility for what they're doing today. Just leave it to those people in charge, which is a corporatist mindset. You, I have to look at each piece of this puzzle and try to identify each piece. Otherwise, if you come purely from a, a rationale, reasonable, reasonable point of view, you're going to end up, I believe, at some point hitting the wall of all those people out there who say, well, okay, but don't ask me to make the sacrifice to live better, eat organically, or uh, to understand things. I'm caught up in my own comfort. Your final thoughts, please. Well, it's absolutely true what you say, but we can't change the world by changing the bottom level of the most ignorant people first. It just never works that way. The way to change the world is to reach the top, say, 10% or maybe even 5% with a new idea that they can actually carry forth, not because it's a smart idea, but because it really enhances the quality of their life and their spiritual connection to do it. That's where the motivation comes from. That's what I think we're doing. Now, it's true that there's 45% or so of the United States who still thinks that as Joel said, that the, you know, the world was created a few thousand years ago. We're not aiming for them. We can't aim for them. It's true it's, uh, that they do control a lot of political power here, but I believe that their children are unhappy with that. Or their children don't want to be excluded from the technological revolution. They don't want to be excluded from the political revolutions that are happening around the world. So if there were an alternative, now I'm going to come back to your very first question, because you said in the beginning there is no alternative. What we have are these old religions and a secular scientism that appears to give no meaning. What Joel and I are arguing is that there is finally an alternative, not just a new creation story, but a whole new picture of reality and our place in it that is based on science and is available to any person on the earth. It does not threaten the moral values of people's religions because we're talking on a different size scale on different size scales you really have to think differently what is true of an individual or a family is not true of a fa of a country for example you really have to think differently on those and we are thinking on a much larger size scale, much larger time scale and also uh, the number of people involved 
So there is an option. We are trying to reach the top level of people. We are trying to start something that we call the Cosmic Society. The Cosmic Society is not about traveling around the universe, you know, visiting aliens. It's not that. The Cosmic Society is about developing a way of thinking that takes into account the new knowledge that we have and that tries to develop the implications clearly so that we can understand how to live in this, basically, this new universe that we've just discovered. Well, I'm very, I'm very committed to sharing forums with you and others who believe that we have a place and if this cosmic society can help bring us a step closer, all the best to you on your efforts. I thank you very much. Could I just say one more thing, that if your yeah. listeners are interested in this, they should go to new-universe.org, which is our website, or to New Universe Book, which is our Facebook page. And join us. Join the Cosmic Society. Get involved in this discussion. We don't have a lot of time to transform the world, but we have a means of doing it. I, I certainly thank you both for bringing this to our attention, and I'm sure that more people will become interested. And the website is new-universe.org. My guests are Professor Joel Primack and Professor Nancy Abrams. Thank you both very much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm Gary Knoll. That's all the time we have. I look forward to sharing more Tomorrow morning uh, on the East Coast, 3 a.m. to 9 a.m., a six-hour program, and on the West Coast, midnight to 6. Have a nice day, everyone. Well, you're gonna get a big surprise Cause I'm gonna put you wise The bells are ringing for me and my gal The Gary Knoll Show is produced in our New York City studio. The producer is Richard Gale. The engineer is Matt Bogart. All shows are archived by Joe Kemp. The chief archivist is Sharon Pride. And the program director is Jason Taubenfeld. Parsons Way.